Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast, the pressure mounting on Boeing. As the stock takes another leg lower, we will break down what is next for this company in crisis. Plus, a slew of underwriters peddling positive initiations on Peloton today. But is this stock facing a major uphill climb? We'll debate that. And later, one of Wall Street's biggest bulls says we are on the brink of a big breakout. Panacord's Tony Dwyer has three reasons why we are headed back to new all-time highs. But we begin with breaking news on WeWork. Sources telling CNBC SoftBank is coming to the rescue. and We'll take control of the company. Let's get straight to Josh Lipton for all the details. Josh. Melissa, that's right. A new dramatic twist in WeWork's story here. CNBC is now reporting that SoftBank is in advance talks to take control of WeWork. That's what sources are telling CNBC's own David Faber. A deal could be announced as soon as tomorrow. It is SoftBank, led by Japanese billionaire Masa-san, that is taking control here, not the Vision Fund. And after the move, SoftBank would then control nearly 80% of WeWork. Prior to the takeover, SoftBank had already invested, remember, nearly $11 billion in the company. SoftBank exec Marcelo Claré will be involved in the company's management. Former CEO Adam Newman's stake will fall to low double digits. Of course, last month, WeWork terminated plans to go public. Its IPO prospectus revealed a huge $900 million loss in the first six months of 2019. Corporate governance practices also causing concern. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco with the very latest on WeWork. Talk about a down- round from the last fundraise, $47 billion valuation to what could be as much as eight and a half billion. Yeah. So high single digit. I mean, we haven't seen this sort of markdown in, in an equity valuation in long a very, time. very long time, um, especially from valuation heights like this. We have seen this in other cycles. I mean, we can go back and remember Amazon lost 85 percent of its value from 2000 highs to 2002 lows, and they lost 65 percent into the 2009 lows. I think it's important to remember there are other things going on similar to this. You know, some of these other unicorns, DoorDash, Postmates, the delivery guys, the people talk about the bubbles there. There is a public comp. It's called Grubhub. It's lost 60% of its value in the last year. So I think these are really important situations to keep your eye on. It tells you both in public and private markets what investors are willing to pay for growth. And, and you, you, you use a good word, cycle, because I, I'm not sure where we are in the cycle for IPOs and how investors are looking at these story stocks, but I can tell you we're not where we were. And if Uber had to come out today and think about the, the, the pressure on that CEO and some of the governance issues there, I mean, I it's a totally different world. So the question is, do you look at this just as, as a SoftBank vision right. fund problem? Or is this a problem for a lot of different people at a time when um, I think markets are not paying attention to, to risk right now? I, I think it's broader than just Masasan. I think this is uh, but vision fund made a lot of people look good for a long time that really didn't have much there. I think it's probably the latter. When you start talking about valuation and what's taking this market higher, it has been the IPO market. It has been large cap tech or tech that doesn't have any earnings. Mm -hmm. So if that's going to be the case, we're not going to see these things rally. Where does the market go? But being an eye shot of all time highs, 
I don't know if we should worry about this as much as we should have worried about it in the past. I think I think there is a, one of the things I said, the reason why we talk about WeWork all the time, not because it's particularly interesting, because I don't particularly think that it is. But what does it mean potentially for the broader market? I mean, SoftBank, supposedly some of the greatest investment minds on the planet, invested a significant amount of money at a forty eight billion dollar valuation. I don't know why that is. And maybe the right valuation is the current valuation. But to Dan's point, down 80 percent. I mean, that is a significant move. It's sort of glossed over because it's not the S&P 500. But who's to say people aren't making the same mistakes in the broader market as it, they are in WeWork? And it's not just SoftBank. I mean, think about all of the fu- Fidelity, for instance, yeah. which invested in these early yeah. stage ventures, right? So, so when you find out that the emperor has no clothes when it comes to these smartest minds in the room, then you really question a lot of things. Well, there's another. Uh, listen, you could also say who is invested in the Vision Fund. It's sovereign wealth funds. It's right. big pension mm-hmm. funds. So these are organizations that are also invested in the public markets. And I don't think in my career or in any of our careers um, that we can remember where a, pub, a, a private equity has been marked down so dramatically. And so when you think about that, if you're a pension fund and you're going to take this marked down loss and the time of it being back at those levels of 40 plus billion is going to be years and years if it ever happens, then you start to think about, OK, what else do I have to think about my portfolio on the public size because I'm going to take a big mark here. All right. So this is a developing story. We'll bring you some uh, other headlines as they cross. Meantime, to the other big story of the day, Boeing falling again as troubles mount for the company following the grounding of its 737 MAX planes. Phil LeBeau is in Chicago with all the details. Phil. And Melissa, Boeing has just announced within the last couple of minutes that it has approved its regular quarterly dividend. That is $2.05. So if you were one of those people who thought, is cash flow a concern? Is there an issue with liquidity down the road for these guys? Hasn't stopped them from approving the same quarterly dividend that we've seen in the past. Today, we did see a number of analyst notes uh, regarding the documents that came out that were uh, leaked out of Capitol Hill on Friday regarding a technical pilot in 2016, his uh, instant messages and emails regarding the 737 MAX flight simulators. In those analyst notes, guys, we saw three downgrades. And as those downgrades came out, and there were a lot of analysts who said, stay to the side, the price target for some came down more than $100. But guess what? The consensus right now still $412. So it's still well above where the stock is trading right now. All of the notes center around this one question. Will production drop for the 737 MAX? And when you look at that production, remember, they're at 42 per month right now. The company has told their suppliers they expect to get certification and then ramp up to 52 per month in February, then to go to 57 per month by June. Dennis Mullenberg out with an employee email out today saying that the company is making steady progress on the return to service for the 737 MAX. By the way, the company still is targeting to have that certification, at least by one of the major regulatory agencies around the world, by the end of this year. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, That is an ugly-looking chart over the last couple of days. But keep this in mind, guys. We will learn more on Wednesday during the analyst call. That'll be the first time we hear from Dennis Mullenberg in terms of a Q&A situation with analysts and get a better read on where he sees the progress of the company as well as the 737 MAX. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago with the very latest in Boeing. Uh, Tim, you're a shareholder, so what do you make of these past Well, I'll tell you what, here, here's, the, here's the issue. Uh, the free cash flow hit is something that I think people should be concerned about because what we've talked about with this company for the last 18 months that really led it to its peak uh, was all about free cash flow. And you were talking about um, at its peak in terms of a forward-looking basis, almost 24 bucks a share in free cash flow. So if you listen to the UBS note, um, they've downgraded 2019 cash flow by $3.5 billion. They've downgraded 2020 by $5 billion. 
And, and if you listen to all these analysts, um, maybe they got a little bit uh, more relaxed or they, they were flexible in when they said the max would be, you know, essentially production would restart. Most guys were kind of October, November, if you read yeah. these guys in the beginning of the summer. So they've been sneaking it into like January, but now they have to address this. Uh, and there's no question, I, I think, the, FD, the FAA has to slow it down, if for no other reason, until they find out more about this. And I think, therefore, that's going to push back some of the free cash flow numbers even more. How is the stock, I said it on Friday, how is the stock still positive year to date? To me, if it were, we, we talked about this, if it was any other stock, it should have been cut in half. And I feel as if people are just saying they'll always be around. It'll well, always the decline be a is happening pretty fast in the past couple of days. It has. But we saw back you know, in March, we saw a right. decline of 18%. Mm-hmm. We saw in July a decline of 16%. Sure. This one was 14 rapidly. But it's still there. It's still positive year to date. It's mind-boggling to me. So what, is that a good sign or a bad sign? It's a good just, sign it's because it's telling you that, the, that there's a duopoly in the, in the segment right. so that people say, okay, no matter where we go, you've got to be someplace, one of the two. So I was talking to a, an analyst today on Power Lunch from Melius Research, Carter Copeland. He has a $500 price target on Boeing stock still. And with all this stuff happening, Mullenberg going to the Hill, et cetera, et cetera, he said, you know, at the end of the day, it's a duopoly. People have nowhere else to go. I was like, life is good if you're in a duopoly. It's like, certainly is. That is a major reason why he's kept with uh, the $500 price target. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons. Like, Facebook, for everybody who wants, and right. I, it's one of those things I'd love to hate, but you can't because it lives by itself sort of in this world. Mm-hmm. Boeing, to a certain extent as well, I understand what Steve is saying, but it's also down from $446 sure. right, January. In, yeah, in January, February. That's a pretty significant move to the downside, and maybe it's been bolstered by the fact that the S&P 500 is one of the whisper of the all-time high. How do you trade the stock here? I think we've been pretty consistent. I mean, I think the December lows are in place. And that low, I think, on the 19th was right around 305. And we've said this. Why in this environment, especially given those headlines on Friday about these instant messages, why pile in ahead of earnings? I don't see your edge at this point. Yeah, I I mean, listen, that... That's just a point in time, December 305. Who knows? You know, I mean, what I see from an earnings standpoint is that analysts took out what they were expecting, 10 percent earnings growth for 2019, and they basically slashed it down 80 percent and they moved it to 2020 and 2021. So when you talk about this duopoly, they don't have to buy the 737 Max, right? There are Airbus comparisons. That's why they started making this plane to catch up to what they had as a single aisle plane. Um, You know, to me, listen, this is going to get messy for a while. I suspect the CEO will not be the CEO by the end of this year, and you're going to have a long period of time where there's going to be regulatory issues, there's going to be fines, there's going to be mismanagement, the company's going to be very cautious on guidance. So I just don't see the reason. I've said this fairly consistently since that first very sad incident. You know, I think it's important to remember, 346 people died in two crashes, and that's what it took to ground these planes. So this is going to take longer than people think. to On our 1230 conference call today, Guy, you said, are there any instances in, in history that are comparable to what is going on with Boeing? And I thought that was a good question. And you mentioned... Really? For once. Yeah, you, uh, had, a, you had a good happens. point. Nice uh, job, you mentioned buddy. Exxon Valdez, right? Yeah. The BP oil spill, things like that. I thought of Wells Fargo, actually. Yeah. Which, by the way, because respectfully, they've screwed the entire thing up now for two years. years. For years. And the stock has done nothing and underperformed its mm-hmm. sector over that same time period. But they had cultural issues, or what people thought were cultural issues. Um, and so... And then they had a regulator breathing down their neck. They have the Fed putting growth caps on them, which is effectively what the FAA can do in terms of the recertification process. What what worries? I mean, in terms of the 
Yeah, so and by the way, I'm, I'm flat you... the position, and, and I flattened out a few weeks ago, and that mm-hmm. may sound like convenient. I, I was ready to jump back into the position last week. I mean, my view was uh, this was a company that around 350 I really wanted to own. And, I, you know, what's different about this, and so all those uh, scenarios you just discussed, um, you, you basically have the issue with a regulator. But I think this is even more acute with a regulator. I mean, obviously... Uh, Exxon and BP had to deal with a lot of different functions, and it was really more about liability in terms of measuring the damage. And even though they, they, did, they did some horrible things to the, to the earth, um, I think people were trying to put a dollar number. It's very difficult to put a dollar number on this. And the sense that I have is also that Boeing and the, the FAA always had had a, a, a very respectful relationship. And if you feel like that that's been tarnished in a way uh, that it's never been before, this will be a bigger problem for the company that we've ever seen. Coming up, drug makers rallying on a big opioid case settlement. We'll tell you what that means for the drug space. Plus, Canaccord Genuity's Tony Dwyer says the march to new all-time highs is underway. He'll reveal what's going to get us there. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Four drug companies reaching a major settlement today over the nation's opioid crisis. Let's get to Meg Terrell in Cleveland with the latest. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, that settlement news this morning has been quickly eclipsed by even bigger potential settlement news. But when we got here this morning, it was to cover the first federal trial over the opioid crisis. That was settled just minutes before it began this morning with the four drug companies involved. Then this afternoon, news came out that a potential broader settlement involving those companies and Johnson & Johnson might have potentially been reached. Four state attorneys general who say they are leading the negotiations on a potential broader settlement held a conference call this afternoon and said that they'd reached a framework with these companies. It includes $18 billion in cash paid by the three drug distributors, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, and Cardinal Health, paid over 18 years. $4 billion in cash paid over two to three years from Johnson & Johnson, as well as $23 billion worth of medication-assisted treatment drugs from Teva, uh, as well as uh, some cash, about $250 million, potentially over 10 years. There is a wrinkle, though. The plaintiff cities and counties involved in thousands of these cases are not necessarily on board with this framework. We heard that from the uh, attorneys representing them this afternoon. And not all state attorneys general are on board either. The Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost saying in a statement this afternoon, quote, this isn't a framework, it's a pile of lumber that's been dropped on the construction site. Ohio will wait and see what the detailed plan looks like. So this is still very much in flux right now, guys. And of course, these five companies, they're not the only defendants involved in these thousands of cases. More than a dozen have been named in the cases and could potentially be involved in a broader settlement at some point. And guys, we talked with the plaintiff's co-lead attorney, Joe Rice this afternoon uh, after the proceedings this morning. 
And he told us there could be more potential defendants named here. So even beyond those dozen that we already know about, more companies could be brought into this fray. So it is far from over, Mel. Back over to you. So, Meg, in terms of the state AGs, how many state AGs would have to approve this deal in order for it to be a global settlement? That's not totally clear right now. That's among the many questions that were being asked of those four state attorneys general. Uh, And how many of the cities and counties might need to be on board as well. Right now, there is certainly no agreement that we've heard about. So effectively, if everybody came on board, we would be looking at a total sum for all of these companies in the 20s billions of dollars for states, counties, municipalities, and for, for everybody, basically. And that's it. That's right, but that's only five of these companies. So you have other potential companies, including pharmacies, other drug companies that could potentially be brought in as well. But for these five, yeah, you're looking at about $22 billion in cash and then about $23 billion more in drugs. Okay. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell joining us from Cleveland, Ohio, where the federal trial was scheduled to start this morning. It seems like a paltry sum at the end of the day for these drug companies, which is good for shareholders. I, I get the sense that these settlements are not going to be the end. And, and I, I realize, you know, a, a settlement's a settlement. But um, I think the number's being thrown around here. I mean, if J&J, who doesn't like to settle ever, um, and usually is, is a guy, a, a, an entity that is standing in there and fighting till the end, except for the fact that as you hear about, hey, we'll trade $4 billion, uh, in, in, in exchange for $50 billion in opioid cases that are up against, and we, we actually also think um, the PR around settlement may be very good for us, this is the kind of thing that you start to do the calculus on, except for the fact that we've only heard from five states. Um, and I, I think this is a case where we're going to see much bigger numbers. It's a very emotional public issue. Mm-hmm. When you look at Teva, down 47% year-to-date, today off of that news, it popped 15%. So it's coming from such a low base. Now, I'm not saying the sky is clear, but if you're going to play this for some sort of a news event, maybe you play it through options or maybe you buy the equity, but it is a very expensive option, but it's priced as if it's going out of business. Well, the, the equity is distressed. I mean, this is an $8 billion market cap. It's got $30 billion in debt, only $2 billion in cash. And, you know, if you just look at their earnings and their sales, they've been declining every year for the last few years. So this is, you know, this, this is a difficult situation. I think that Johnny John, Johnson & Johnson, to absorb this sort of thing right. is much better. I think you make a really good point. For these guys who are, like, basically saying, yeah, here's our framework, and Johnson & Johnson never settles, you know, they yeah. think the number could be much bigger, I suspect. Yeah, Plus, I uh, quickly, J&J is fighting a two—I mean, they're fighting— a battle now on two fronts. I mean, we're not even talking about... Oh, more than that. How about well, three? They've, they've, yeah. got, well, they've got a they've list added, added of, a couple, of but, drugs that are it's being... Not just. And, then, and then just how about the, mm. the, the political pressure on the sector, mm-hmm. too? So, I mean, right. they, it's it, it's not as if it's... I, I like J&J. Um, I, I, I can't say I go in and buy more of it here, but I, I do think it's something that is held up actually remarkably well relative to all this pressure. And I think J&J probably, we've said this, 121 is the level it probably trades down to. And getting back to, I think, ABC, Cardinal Health, McKesson, they issue a statement. They're hoping, obviously, that yeah. this settlement in Ohio leads to a framework. But to Tim's point, you know, hope is not an investment thesis. Now, that stock, and uh, McKesson's going from 130 to 152, pretty much in a straight line. Evaluation makes sense. They report, I believe, at the end of the month. But now you have to ask yourself, you know, where's the next level to get in? And in terms of McKesson, which I think might be one of the most interesting ones here, I think 141 or so makes sense for a lot of reasons. That's probably two and a half, three dollars from where we are right now. All right. You can read more about the opioid settlement on our website, CNBC.com. We've got much more ahead on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Break out your rally caps, because one of Wall Street's biggest bulls says we're headed back to all-time highs. He'll lay out three factors that will get us there. 
And later, peddling positivity. Wall Street analysts going bullish on Peloton. But the stock has a big uphill ride. We'll explain when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Monday. The market marching closer to all-time highs as the busiest part of earnings season gets underway. And our next guest suggests new records could be right around the corner. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Mel. Still ever the bull. So what brings us higher? The guys and gals printing the money told you they're going to print more money. Ultimately, the term don't fight the Fed comes from the fact that we always come up with these great reasons of why it's right or wrong, good or bad. The guy's printing the money, told you they're going to keep printing the money, and that means an offensive playbook. And, and how, so how do you know the pivot point, Mel? And for me, it's when the 10-year note yield makes a low. That's your shift from defense to offense. That happened September 3rd, mm-hmm. got retested a couple of weeks ago, and now you're moving higher, which is why trannies, small caps, offense is playing. So for a while, when rates looked like they were low and could make new low, whatever. A lot of bullish strategists would come on and say, you know what, that's good for valuations. And here you are saying that once once the pivot happens in the 10-year yield and it goes higher, that is actually a good thing for stocks. So is there is, it, is there sort of a, I don't know, a golden area in which you, know, yeah, you, you don't want it to be too high? You don't no, want it it's to be more too directional low. than trying to pick a level, quote okay. unquote level. I don't, I don't think that levels are as important as they used to be, only except when they hit extremes. And, and by that, I mean, you get, for example, is one and a half percent the level? I, I don't know. You broke it three times by a little bit. So you could look back and say, yeah, maybe it's anything below one and a half percent. But again, what the pivot of psychology that happens is everybody got onto the defensive side of the boat. So it's the psychology. It's not yeah, necessarily remember, the actual. Well, this is a human nature game that we try to put numbers on. Mm-hmm. So our whole bull story for 2019, as you guys all know, was wrapped around weaker economic growth that got the Fed engaged enough to make the long end realize they're going to re-stimulate growth. So what are you seeing in the market PMIs globally? You're seeing an inflection point off historically weak levels. So a lot of the economic data, the three things are you got the Fed easing. The central banks globally are just throwing money at the whole thing. And again, forget about whether it's good or bad. It is what it is. The second thing is you're getting an inflection point in the global manufacturing, and you've got a demographic, a monster demographic tailwind with the uh, millennials peak birth year turning 30 i went to my niece's wedding it was hysterical she got married two weeks ago and she had nine gals in her wedding party and they're all going to each other's weddings right they're all starting families and doing what you do when you do when like i did when i turned 30 start a family start spending money 
buy yeah. a house. You buy a house. You have 10 years of income verification. At 30 years old, you have... They just, they just cut rates in half. And they're still giving us money. You're in a recession in the consumer when they cut rates and they're not going to give you money. I thought so they weren't buying matter. houses, though. I thought they didn't care about material stuff like you and I did. Dude, I was a millennial. I, all I wanted was experience. 54-year-old millennial. But all I wanted was experience. Yeah, but Tony, you just said something. You City. used the R word, recession. So yeah. that was what the biggest fear was, recession. You've nailed uh, 18 months to 24 months once the uh, yield curve inverts Correct. as your timeline to still be buying the market. Correct. Where are you on recessionary fears? Because the Fed, when you talk about the party is, is all in the Fed's pocket, they're, they have limited bullets, right? So they can't I, I do as much as you're hoping for them to do in the market. I don't think they have limited bullets, do. right? The, the interest yield, the yields just got cut in half. Everybody I know that can is refining. Everybody that wants to buy a house just got a much cheaper mortgage. So you're actually having a stimulative turn coming from all of this weakness. And again, you know, people are so sick of me talking about the third mini recession of the cycle. We're in a manufacturing recession. People are looking for what we already found. We're in a mini recession. Now we're coming out of it because rates dropped so much. You only know that because the 10-year has turned. And that's the sign that you're stimulating growth. So let's talk S&P 500 for a second, Tony. So, you know, when I think about Q1 earnings cycle into April, the stock market made a new all-time high and it came in 7% in that last, from the start, uh, you know, peak to trough. And then we go into Q2 earnings cycle in late July, same thing, new high in the S&P 500, 6.5% decline. We're going to make a new high. You just told us that. We're just a percent or so away from that, but we're going to be in that last week of the Q3 earnings cycle. Why is it different this time? Again, because the expectations are, are now finally, Dan, beginning to come down. So here's a myth buster we did at Canaccord. We looked at out-year estimates because one of the arguments is the out-year estimates still have to come down. And we found that in years this cycle and before, when your out-year estimate was being reduced aggressively, guess what? Valuations expanded and market went up. The two of the three negative years this cycle happened when the out-year estimates were actually revised upward, 2011 and 2018. This is all about the money printing. Again, this never ends well. You cannot fix debt with exponentially more debt. It's not going to go good. So the, the doomsday, Dwyer doomsday clock has happened. The 210 curve inverted. Now you watch the credit metrics to figure out when it's imminent. Mm-hmm. Corporate credit is booming. Household debt service ratio historically low. Delinquency rates at the cycle low. It's a hard thing. So your year-end price target for next year is Correct. 33.50. This year it's only 29.50. Right. So, so right now we're above that. In terms of what sectors bring us to 33.50, you're going offensive. You got to go offensive. Well, let's forget my opinion. Let's go with the history of what happens when you bottom the tenure. Financials, industrials, consumer discretionary, and cyclical tech lead. In both cases. So in both cases coming out of the mini recessions in mm-hmm. 2012 and 2016, you were up roughly 20% mm-hmm. when you made that low in the treasury yield. So the low in the market happened. Market rally 20%, Treasury yields made its low, went up an additional 30-plus percent each time led by offense. So, you know, I'm not going to chase the target higher. You know, it's silly in two months to try and put a valuation on it. But I'm focused on 33.50, and and I think it's going to be front-end loaded. And if that's right, I'm very conservative for next year. All right. Tony, good to see you. Thank you. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord. Thank you, As we march towards record highs, the chart master says there are two names that could be coming along for the ride. Two names whose run may be done. Carter's over the plaza to break down the plays. Carter. Yeah, two, uh, 
Two good ones, two bad ones. All have earnings this week. Let's uh, look at it together. What is a conventional buy? A big word in the sense that I haven't named it. Convention, generally agreed upon. Everyone knows that a stock at well-defined tops has the potential to break out. Could be Nike, could be J.P. Morgan. There are a lot of stocks at conventional buy junctures. Here are two, Verizon and VF Corp. Nothing to do with one another, but that's the point. It's not about what they do. It's about the setup. And at the weekend of the market, heretofore strong stocks, too bullish to bearish reversals, great winners that have stalled and rolled over. PayPal has nothing to do with Roper, a huge S&P 500 industrial, but they're virtually identical. Let's start with those two. So here is a comparative chart, not manipulated by me. It's a one-year chart, literally a perfect overlay. Again, this is a $120 billion payment processor. This is a $35 billion um, global industrial. And it is a virtual perfect overlay. They are both bullish to bearish reversals. You can call it head and shoulders top. You can say that PayPal broke its trend line. But either way, that's not typically a good setup. Now hold that in your mind's eye and look at the next one. It's identical. I'm not drawing the lines. The lines draw themselves. It's the same setup. They have nothing to do with one another. That's the point of charting in many ways, trying to suspend one's knowledge or purported knowledge and just go with the facts. Now, VF Corp, um, big apparel name, 37 billion brands that you know, like Vans and Timberland, North Face. Are these well-defined tops at a common level? Is it works in the apex? Is it just now breaking out after two years in a range? It is. Does this have anything to do with one of the biggest telecommunication companies in the world, Verizon? Is It's identical. That's the point, right? It's why more and more money goes to algorithms, to passive uh, investing, because it doesn't really matter sometimes what the darn thing does. These two look as though they're going to continue to break out. The other two look as though they're going to continue to roll over. Carter, thanks. Carter Braxton Worth. You bet. Love Carter. Where can we see more of Carter, Mel? Um, On Fast Money or on Options Action. Love him. Genius. Coming up, an analyst just put a street-high price target on Apple. We'll break down what could be behind the next big Apple rally, plus the big week ahead from Mark Zuckerberg. We'll tell you what to expect as the Facebook CEO gears up for another appearance on the Hill. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Raymond James getting sweet on Apple today, raising its price target on the stock to 280 from 250. That is now the most bullish price target on the street. Raymond James says strong iPhone sales will help boost Apple's earnings. So does the stock really have another 20 percent upside? I feel like everybody's finally moved over to the other side of the boat. Yeah, well, so that, that's been part of the move here, right? Because I don't think going into this refresh, there was any expectation. So when, when you actually heard about slightly lower prices, you got a sense that shipments could be a little bit better. People have woven in their 5G uh, into next year. But I, I think it, the only way you can do this, and I'm long Apple, and I'm pretty bullish here, um, is by the multiple. Uh, that, that, to me, is how analysts can begin to start playing with their numbers, and they can make it go a lot higher if you believe that the blended multiple takes you to somewhere 18, 19 times, where 12 times historically we're starting to say Apple is expensive. With all the capital markets activity that they can throw at you and that dividend and the ability to continue to execute on buybacks, I think they get there. Part of this call was the lower price SE, which will be launched at the beginning of next year, which will be a bridge to the 5G cycle, which could last two years instead of one year, according yeah. to Raymond James. So I think that everyone threw out hardware. Everyone thought it was going to be a services game. Mm-hmm. So when you enter back in and say, okay, hardware is going to be something, it's going to move the needle. It's a tailwind. Now it's a tailwind. But you have to remember technicals on this. 233 was your resistance. That becomes support. Breaks down below that. Exit the trade. 
And it is overbought on an RSI right now, relative strength index. So I would wait till it gives back a little bit to get back in or to buy more if you're still long Apple. So the 280 level, and this is actually becomes the math problem we've talked about. It's sort of given a 22 forward multiple off next year's $12.75 or so that Apple's expected to earn. So you can understand where the number's coming from if that's the right multiple. Who's to say? What I will say is, you know, and Steve's talked about this, that 232 level that was a previous high, it blew right through. At least you have something to trade against. They report on the 30th. Market seems to be okay, so maybe it continues to levitate into those earnings. Yeah, so if you're buying this stock at all-time highs after it's rallied 70% from its Jan 2nd lows... Have at it, the, have at no, it. Because, have of, because, of, because of the 5G cycle... Let me tell you, people, people are not in this country going to be upgrading their iPhones that they just spent $1,000 or $1,200 on a year or two ago for a 5G phone. Or they've already bought a 5G phone because they're already on the market in other but, places. But it doesn't matter because yeah. the networks don't really, they're not ready for The whole for bullish anyway. thing, though, Dan, I think that people lowered their estimates so far on the or on, did they, on they hardware. Have, I just don't think they've been growing. Why this trillion-dollar stock in the world? Remember, I mean, okay. it, it went flying through that trillion-dollar level. Yeah. And we actually, it was nice because yeah. we actually avoided that as a news day. Right. I mean, I, I think it, yeah. it was actually so, very so pleasant. Last I think year, at this time, it had a trillion-dollar market cap, and by January 2nd, it had below a $700 million market cap. So the notion... That, that's that, my point, well, though. We've shot well through that trillion-dollar level without people I, I'm just saying on. that if you're thinking about 2020 refresh cycles, mm-hmm. have at it. I'm there not. I'm not. I'm thinking about the multiple. And I, we can do this all over again, but it's probably time for a commercial. So. That and have a ball. They're tied. <laughs> knock one, yourself out, people. Knock yourself yeah. out. That's yeah. in third all place. Right. Um, from one tech I've giant to another, it is shaping up to be a big week for Mark Zuckerberg. The Facebook CEO is headed to Capitol Hill to testify before Congress. Let's get to Julia Borson. What we can expect. Hi, Julia. Well, Melissa, Mark Zuckerberg has been making the rounds looking to get his message out there ahead of his testimony on Wednesday before the House Financial Services Committee. He spoke to NBC's Lester Holt in an exclusive interview. I get that a lot of people are angry at us. Part of growing up for me has just been realizing that it is more important to be understood than it is to be liked. And, and I believe it very strongly. And I, I do think that people can, can make up their own minds about, uh, about me or, or the work that we're doing. But, uh, but this is who I am. Coming up on Wednesday, he'll be questioned about Facebook's push to create cryptocurrency Libra. High-profile backers have recently dropped out of Libra. The Treasury warning Libra could be a tool for money launderers and terrorists. And there are privacy and antitrust concerns about the cryptocurrency. Now, ahead of this testimony Wednesday, Facebook unveiling its latest in its work to protect elections, including labeling posts they deem false on Facebook and Instagram as misinformation. Now, also today, Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign confirmed that Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan recommended staffers to the Buttigieg campaign. Zuckerberg's spokesperson saying that they haven't decided who to back yet in this presidential election. Melissa? Uh, In Los Angeles, apparently, uh, P and Buttigieg were they were at, in, at Harvard at the same time. No kidding. So they knew each other, yeah. But were, you, were you there with them or no? No. You predated them a bit? I definitely. It was Pete's idea <laughs> for Facebook. It wasn't the Winklevosses. Oh. Can you imagine <laughs> how the world changed? Now he's making things up. Uh, but in terms of Facebook and, and 
what to expect here. I just want to say one thing. You know, this is a stock that I know you were penning op-eds all last year oh, about, yeah. about the company. Leading edge. And, and this company <laughs> got in front from, a, from, a, um, from the perspective of getting in front of regulata- regulatory sort of things. Earnings ex- are expected to rise 1% this year, so they're gone. Okay, But this is one of the most toxic stories. We just talked about Boeing. We talked about Johnson & Johnson. I have teenage girls. I am more concerned with what goes on on their platform than I am with, with drugs and alcohol. And, and cigarettes and stuff like that. It's a toxic product. This is going to be something that mm. our generation is going to face right now and how we deal with it. And so to me, I, you know, I was reasonably constructive last year dealing with all this stuff. I think this is going to get worse. I think 2020 is going to be a disaster for them. I think he's not the right guy to steward them so through this So you agree with this optically. op-eds? Yes, I do. Yes, Thank I you, do. Dan. I'm, well, I'm just saying, I, I just think this is a huge story. But I, it's, I, not, it's not Zuckerberg's role, I, at least I don't think. It's his role to decide on what is going on on you, you could you could take malicious you could take hate you could take all that off but it's not his job to police facebook I think it and is. say this one it's too difficult to do I, I, I think it is i think we're, what we're learning in, in 2.0 or 3.0 social media it is their responsibility and we're getting to a place where not only is is the trust and the privacy and there's multiple layers of that but i think from a regulatory perspective we can still believe in free speech and expression in this country and not have this stuff on our sites and i think people are getting comfortable but where with do the you pushback on that but where do you but, draw but, the line? I, well I, I think i think some is figuring it out and i, I the more That's important the point for me on risk. facebook right. is i don't think they know how to value their company or the cost of doing that the cost literally and the cost of their viewers my, my point is their, addiction their subscribers. totally different than all that and i think it's equally as important we see advertisers leave um, platforms or leave products all the time. This is going to be the, the issue of our generation from an they addiction standpoint. Left yet, they left, well, let me tell you something. They left the cigarettes and they left the vaping and they left mm. all this other stuff. It's going to happen to mm. these guys. I'm just telling you that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, How about it? But in, in the meantime, but, but into October Well, the 30th. stock has stalled for the last few months, Mel. I mean, it hasn't made a new high yeah. in a very long time. And I just think we've been saying this for a long time. Until users leave, until advertisers right. leave, they haven't done that yet, but they may. It has stalled. It's been actually a decent stock to trade, I think you would agree. I mean, from peak to trough, the moves have been interesting. Technically, it's done everything right. I've said for a while, I I want in my heart to hate everything about it. But in terms of the stock, in earnings on the 30th, it pains me to say, to your point, people aren't getting rid of their Facebook pages and advertisers aren't leaving because they have no place to go. So I think it sets up well in the earnings next week or whenever October 30th is. Up next, it's mystery chart time. This stock is on track to post its best year in more than a decade. And options traders are betting on an even bigger bounce when it reports results. We'll bring you that name. Plus, analysts initiating coverage on Peloton today. And they're following one curious pattern that has emerged with recent IPOs. We'll reveal what that is and what it can mean for IPO investors. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a slew of earnings on deck this week. One big name gearing up to report tomorrow is Procter & Gamble, the consumer staple's heavyweights on pace for its best year since 1997. While the big run has cooled off a bit this month, options traders are betting the rally isn't over yet. Let's get to Bonowin Ellison, Managing Director of Equity Derivatives at XP Investments, to break down the options action. Welcome back, Bonowin. Take it away. Thanks so much, Melissa. So, yes, taking a look at the weekly options, you can see that the -the at-the-money straddle is implying about a 4% move. That's in line with what we've seen over the last two years. So I would say options are pretty fairly priced. Let's take a deeper dive. Now, this sticks out to me. If you look at call and put volume for the month, you can see that calls outstrip puts two and a half to three times to one. That's significant. It seems like there's some real bullish sentiment coming into earnings here, which is interesting because taking a look at this next chart, 
you can see that there is a long-term uptrend here. I want to focus on this place right here. We're kind of testing the lower bound of that uptrend. It'll be interesting to see whether we hold trend and bounce or if that stock rolls over and sells off. There's a two, a two things that come to mind, a couple ways to play this. If you compare Procter & Gamble to the XLP, the consumer staple ETF of which PG is 16%, you can see that focusing again right here, this spread, sorry, I guess my drawing skills aren't working today, this spread right here, this is at pretty significant statistical highs, meaning that XLP looks cheap versus PG. Taking that a step further, if you take a look at skew for PG, Procter & Gamble skew is cheap. So how do you play this? Why is this actionable? Well, there's a couple ways I like to play it. Selling put spreads or selling one by two put spreads. In either case, you're going to sell the at the money or thereabout put and buy one in the case of the one by one or two downside puts. Both situations will protect you if that stock does roll over. And the one by two, you'll actually start to realize some profitability if that stock continues to sell off. Now, to add another layer to this, I also like overlaying either one of those strategies with the sell of an upside call. And I typically do not like recommending the sell of naked calls, but I'm comfortable here and I'll tell you why. The options are implying about a 4% move. If you sell that 6 or 7% out of the money call with the proceeds that you're going to take in from that package, in the event that they make an aggressive move to the upside, you will be getting called out of that stock at all-time highs. Now, Keep in mind that PG is trading at 27 times price to earnings. Compare that to XLP, 21 times. Walmart, Coke, Pepsi, 24, 25 times. So again, in the event, and that's if you do get called out of that stock, you can take those proceeds and rotate, rotate into other defensive, secure, counter-cyclical names that still give you that safety in your portfolio. That's how I'm looking to play PG. All right, Bonwin, thanks. Bonwin Eisen. For more options action, tune into the full show this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, the one Wall Street analyst that might have signed, sealed, and delivered a bottom for FedEx will explain. Take a look at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of StockX. That interview and much more coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. We're live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. If you are a loyal Fast Money fan, and of course you are, you might remember that we covered Bernstein's downgrade of FedEx about two weeks ago. The firm saying the bull thesis has been shredded. Take a listen. Shredded. Dead money. Not working. Spending unchecked. Downgrading. Just a few of the scathing words Bernstein had for FedEx this morning. And you would expect that to tank the stock. But you'd be wrong. FedEx hung in there today under a barrage of pessimism. And it's hung in since, climbing nearly 10% since that call. So what does this mean for the stock? Was that the bottom, Guy? Rain, they absolutely rang the bell. And I think we alluded to it that day after you went on your rant, your little diatribe, which was fantastic, by the way. But it doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean any of their sure. thesis yeah. or their premises. Their timing was miserable. And I think we alluded to that. So this has been a great bounce. You've seen bounces like this before in FedEx. I think at a certain point you fade it. I don't think it's right here. There's going to be an opportunity probably around the 160 level to sell this sucker again. So, so seasonality, I said this uh, a couple of weeks ago, seasonality, November is the best month for FedEx. December is the worst month. Mm-hmm. So you do have some, to, uh, just specifically for that 30-day range, you can't find in the last five-year average 
any year that was negative for November for FedEx. I think you're still okay staying long. All right, moving on. Analysts initiating coverage on Peloton today. And here's a fun fact. Every single underwriter on the company's IPO initiated coverage with a buy or outperform rating. It's a pattern that has been playing out with a number of other recent IPOs. If you take a look at names like Uber, Smile Direct Club, Beyond Meat, Zoom that went public this year, you'll notice their lead underwriters are often the firms initiating with bullish coverage on the stock. And those same bullish calls have often diverged from the stock's performance since they went public. Uber, Smile Direct, even Peloton have plunged. And even Beyond Meat and Zoom have fallen way off their highs. So are IPO underwriters too bullish? What does that mean for investors looking into these names? I feel like we should play a the more you know Mm. kind of thing because this is sort of what you suspect goes on in Wall Street anyway. So let me just (laughs) add one point because I know Tim probably wants to have at it a little bit. I I think you use the term (laughs) underwriters in the pricing Uh, of the deal Uh is entirely wrong. They are just one player in this. We have early VC investors. We have uh, growth investors, some of the other funds, you know, like mutual funds that get in while they're still private. You know, a lot of people have a vested interest in them pricing very high, including the company, right? So when you think about that, so the only people that don't have an incentive of pricing high are those that are buying on the deal for the first time on the day of the IPO. So to me, you know, and those investors are often giving very unrealistic indications of what they want, too. So it's, it's easier said than done finding that, pri- uh, that right price, and I just don't think it's all about the underwriters. Well, I mean, you know, the, the bankers and the research guys are supposed to be sitting in very different rooms, having very different views on things, or, or not necessarily, but certainly they're, they're not supposed to be associated. So I'm going to take the view that that's actually what's going on here. But I, I, I think, you know, what we have seen with a number of these IPOs is I, more in line with what Dan is saying. I think by the time these companies have come to market, mm-hmm. um, everyone who wanted to own those shares owned them. And there was nothing left to do. And it was all about lockups that were coming out for, for companies that the private world has never been that big. So, you know, that to me is what this has been about. All right. Up next, final trades. Welcome back to Fast. We've got a big interview coming your way tomorrow. Disney CEO Bob Iger will join our very own Julia Borson for a first on CNBC interview from the Vanity Fair Summit. That's tomorrow, just past 1 p.m. Eastern time. Time for the final trade, Tim. So somehow we really didn't get to the banks today and how they absolutely outperformed. This violent rotation we saw in August, September is happening again, quietly. Steve Grasso. Now, this is a tough one. Snap. I'm going to say bye, but their report tomorrow, there's a slew of analysts that are getting positive on the name. I think you have upside to 18, but this one could get hairy. I think you're okay to buy it, though. Dan Nathan. Uh, yeah, so unlike Guy, I think you do not buy Facebook into the earnings. I think it's an epic-looking head and shoulders top right here. But I love feisty Dan. I really do. I think Dan is always feisty. But it's, it's Slumburger. They, you know, I'm talking about Slumburger. Yeah. Slob, we call it. Yeah. I think if you watch, it put it's in a nice little a double tradable bottom. See you back here tomorrow at five. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.